The Hamlet Podcast, episode 91. Hello and welcome to this exploration of Shakespeare's Hamlet with me, your host, Connor Hanretty. At the end of the previous episode, Hamlet was eagerly observing his mother's response to the play. The focus was on the player queen and her earnest promises to her sickly husband that truly she could never love another man. Shakespeare is adding a new flavour to the mix, quietly inviting us to consider the possibility that perhaps Gertrude was aware of, or even complicit in, her first husband's murder. In the notes for the most recent Arden Shakespeare edition of the play, the editors suggest that perhaps the speech that follows is the one that Hamlet has inserted into the play. It's a little different to the rest of the speeches that the travelling players have performed, and there's certainly room for us to consider the possibility of it being Hamlet's composition. A production could find many ways of presenting this. Hamlet could mouth along the words or show us that he knows this speech by heart. My own money would be on the speech by Lucianus that we'll come to in about three episodes' time, but there's no harm in considering the options. The player king answers his wife's promise of fidelity with another sequence of tightly rhymed couplets, full of repeated consonants and obvious poetic flourishes. Whether this is Hamlet's attempt at dramatic verse or Shakespeare's witty approximation of inferior playwrights is probably up to a given production. It's the first extended speech we've had in quite a while, and I'll read it all before we break it down. The King says, I do believe you think what now you speak, but what we do determine oft we break. Purpose is but the slave to memory, of violent birth but poor validity, which now, like fruit unripe, sticks on the tree, but fall unshaken when they mellow be. Most necessary it is that we forget to pay ourselves what to ourselves is debt, what to ourselves in passion we propose, the passion ending doth the purpose lose. The violence of either grief or joy their own enactures with themselves destroy. Where joy most revels, grief doth most lament. Grief joys, joy grieves on slender accident. This world is not for I, nor tis not strange, that e'en our loves should with our fortunes change. For tis a question left us yet to prove, whether love lead fortune, or else fortune love. The overall thrust of the king's argument is that it's all very well for his queen to make these promises, but that things can and must change. Even though he does believe what she's saying, he knows not to trust these promises. I do believe you think what now you speak, but what we do determine oft we break. Even though he believes her now, he explains that we all go back on promises, even ones we are determined to keep. Purpose is but the slave to memory, a violent birth but poor validity. This is a brilliant idea. Our purposes are subject to our memory and only survive as long as we remember them. Even the most passionately sworn promise of violent birth is only as valid as the memory in which it is maintained. The king continues with an image appropriate to the garden in which the play is set, describing such promises, which now, like fruit on ripe sticks on the tree, but fall unshaken, when they mellow be. The image is a typically clear one from nature. When the fruit is young and ripening, it clings to the tree. 
but when the time comes, they fall away without anyone even having to shake the tree. Such are the queen's earnest promises. She may cling to them now, but he knows that after his death they will fall away again soon enough. And again, all eyes should probably be on Gertrude for this, since that's exactly what happened. The player king insists, most necessary it is that we forget to pay ourselves what to ourselves is debt. What to ourselves in passion we propose, the passion ending doth the purpose lose. We have to let ourselves off the hook with the debts and passionate promises we make when we are in love. When the passion ends, whether via death or otherwise, the purpose of all these promises is lost. We have to release ourselves and we have to let these things go. The violence of either grief or joy, their own enactures with themselves destroy. Where joy most revels, grief doth most lament. Grief joys, joy grieves on slender accident. Now the king is getting even more philosophical. He's explaining that passionate joy and grief both fade. And so, likewise, do the things we do when we are feeling them. Promises made in the throes of grief or joy are thus destroyed when the emotion passes. He's also pointing out that such emotions can turn on a dime. Joy can turn to grief or grief to joy on slender accident. This world is not for I, nor tis not strange that even our loves should with our fortunes change. This world, he says, is not built to support grief or joy, and it is not strange at all that our loves should change when our fortunes do. It feels almost like the noble king is giving the queen his blessing to remarry when her fortune changes. Once a widow, she is free to forget her promises and find another husband. If this is the segment that Hamlet has written, he's making his father look almost heroically noble. The king continues with a new idea. For tis a question left us yet to prove whether love lead fortune or else fortune love. It's an unsolved mystery to us whether love controls our luck or luck controls our love lives. The king has a good deal more to say, and the queen has an even more passionate response, but since we've reached our quota for the week, we'll save the continuing drama in the orchard for the next episode. As I'm sure you know by now, you can find an ever-growing bounty of extra information on the website, thehamletpodcast.com, and do please be sure to share it with fellow students, readers, or Shakespeare lovers. I'll speak to you next time. Mm -hmm.